this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Content Director for ACG's Media Group. Today's episode is brought to you by Twinbrook Capital Partners and features a look at the state of the healthcare sector from a lender's perspective. Joining me is Tim Wentink, a partner at Twinbrook who works on healthcare lending opportunities with private equity sponsors. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. So we've heard that the lending markets have remained pretty choppy this year. What are some of the differences you've seen in the structures getting done in today's market compared with early 2022? Yeah, so I do think choppy is probably a good way to describe the current lending market. And maybe just to level set a little bit before we get into it, you know, at Twinbrook, we're a private credit firm focused on sponsor-backed deals in the lower middle market. So if you think about 5 to 25 of EBITDA, plus or minus, and I'm specifically focused on the healthcare sector, as you mentioned, and we've closed over 220 healthcare transactions at Twinbrook, which is pretty broadly diversified across a bunch of different subsectors uh, within the healthcare space. So again, if you're kind of focusing on the lower middle market, I, th- I still think choppy is the, the right word to use for today. There are definitely a lot of active lenders like Twinbrook, but there are a bunch of them still sitting on the sidelines today. And the debt markets really kind of started slowing down back in September of 2022. And if you kind of break that down, maybe another, another level down, if you're kind of looking at the makeup of the, the credit markets today, I, I usually kind of think about them in, in three different silos or buckets, you know, between commercial banks, uh, finance companies, you know, for example, companies that are backed by a large insurance company or one LP, and then uh, private credit firms like a Twinbrook. And so the private credit firms in general have become a much, much bigger piece of the pie over the last five to 10 years you know, if you kind of look at the overall market share. But I think all three of these categories have really kind of taken into consideration the current market with higher interest rates and a potential looming recession and are being a little bit more conservative in general as they're thinking about credits. But I I do think the bigger issue is still more on the liquidity side. Uh, And so if you kind of break that down, on the commercial banks, they're obviously generally more conservative to begin with. But continuing to tighten up how much they want to lend out as a means to shore up their balance sheets with some of the recent commercial banking turmoil that's happened earlier this year. And on the finance company side, a lot of these businesses have one big LP. If it's an insurance company who has liabilities and dividends that they need to continue to pay out, and there's maybe a sense of just let's be a little bit more conservative for now so we can hit the liabilities that we have to pay and the dividends that we have to pay and a little bit of a pullback there. And on the private credit side, um, you know, there's lots of different private credit groups out there. And I think just depending on where you are at from your capital base and your latest fund and from a fundraising perspective, there's some groups that, you know, are taking a break because maybe they're, you know, low on money or out of money at this point in time. So that's kind of how I, you know, think about the market today, which is leaving, you know, some active lenders, like I said, but definitely some sitting on the sidelines. You know, where, where can you get deals done today? Or I think your question was, there's some of the differences in the structure today versus early 2022. So you can definitely get good deals done in the market. The biggest shift versus earlier in 2022 has been around how are you structuring these deals? And there's a real focus first on cash flow of the companies. And that's what you're looking at first to set the leverage 
you know, at the end of the day, lenders want to give you a loan. They want their money back and a little bit of interest. And so really focusing more on cash flow, interest coverage, fixed charge, um, and then again, backing into leverage is, is what uh, lenders are looking at. You know, some of the cash flow considerations obviously are each company is different, but how much taxes they're paying, capbacks, some of the cash expenses that are added back to EBITDA. So you touched on this a little bit, Tim, but can you talk more about how private equity sponsors are getting deals financed in this environment and what your expectations are for the lending market through the rest of this year? Yes. So it it is definitely harder to navigate the debt markets. Do you get a deal done today versus, let's say, the the first half of 2022? Uh, In general, leverage is down, like we kind of just talked about. Hold sizes for lenders are generally down and pricing is up. And there's a lot of lenders that are, again, kind of sitting on the sidelines that, quite honestly, sometimes it's a little bit hard to know who that is (laughs) and who's really sitting on the sidelines if you have capital lend out. There's still good deals that you can get get done and put in your portfolio, and you know doing new deals with potentially a new sponsor, you can pick up you know some market share as well. But again, the new reality is cash flow is driving the deal structures. If you have a good deal, you can get it financed. You really just need to focus on structuring it correctly out of the gate and pricing it correctly. Some sponsors are actually taking leverage down themselves, you know, even a little bit more out of the gate. And I think that is actually, if you can do it these days, a smart way to think about structuring deals where, you know, a lot of our healthcare deals are acquisition driven. And if you are maxing out leverage out of the gate and it goes a little bit sideways, and let's just say you get up to in today's market five and a half times or something like that, and you have to pause from doing acquisitions, that's actually really bad from a return perspective in your IRRs. And so if you start off at three and a half or four with the DDTL that lets you lever up to four and a, four and a half, uh, as an example, you can do these acquisitions. If things go sideways a little bit, you can still continue to do those acquisitions and you know it won't hurt your, your IRRs over time. Um, so that's, that's one thing we've been seeing. I think uh, the other point to, to raise in this, in this topic is you know, single lender versus multi-lender deals. In today's market, you could kind of think about a single lender deal of 50 to 75 plus or minus, uh, where there's a good amount of lenders that could do those deals by themselves. But you know, some of these lenders who are maybe a little bit more capital constrained are being pretty picky about coming into somebody else's deal. And so if you have a deal that's much bigger, let's just say, you know, 150 or 200 million, and you have to bring other people in, it just it just lowers the amount of potential lenders <laughs> that will come in these days. Um, there's still, you know, we're kind of back into what it was back in 06, 07, kind of dating myself when every deal was clubbed up uh, by the sponsor. So there's a lot of sponsors who are just trying to club up deals. You know, there's not as many deals that are being underwritten today. It's still hard for lenders to underwrite deals with no flex just because the market is so choppy. But you know, there are lenders, including ourselves, where we have, you know, capital markets teams that will do a best efforts execution and still kind of run a process and, you know, go out wide and, and you know, be able to help with getting a club together. Um, so that's one other way uh, you can kind of think about a deal that's, you know, bigger than a single lender deal. And I think you said kind of what's the outlook for the rest of the year. Again, it's a little bit hard to predict, but I think it's going to continue to get slowly better. Um, and if you really kind of focus on the private credit bucket, you know, within the market that I that I mentioned, 
this market's obviously it's a bigger piece of the pie these days. There is more money coming back into the system from LPs. And I think as more money comes in, that's obviously going to loosen up everything and start to slowly come back. Again, I think eventually we'll get back to normal eventually, but I think this year it'll kind of you know slowly start coming back. A lot of folks I talked to at the start of the year were predicting that the number of sponsor-backed leveraged buyouts would be down in 2023 and that add-ons would make up a greater share of M&A. That does seem to be playing out in the overall market, but is is that the case in the healthcare space too? And are there any healthcare subsectors that are maybe bucking that trend? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair statement, even within healthcare, that LBO should be down uh, this year, especially, especially versus last year. You know, we just saw a stat that Q1 2023 LBO volume was one of the lowest quarters in a long, long time. But from an acquisition side, you know, I do think, you know, the extra uncertainty that's in the market right now makes it even more compelling for some of these smaller businesses to join a larger business, a more stable platform. We've seen a relatively consistent amount of volume for bulk on acquisitions, you know, even since September of last year. Again, I think there's that wanting to join a bigger platform in more uncertain times is actually kind of helping um, some of our businesses get more acquisitions done. I think the bigger thing that's going to be out there is on, you know, the DDTLs that are committed right now. So there's a lot of our deals that have committed DDTLs where, you know, a sponsor can go do an acquisition and fund it with a DDTL. And the idea is once you fill up the DDTL with acquisitions, you get another one and just keep doing the same strategy over and over again. And so... One of the things I think that's going to run into this year with hold sizes kind of taking a step back from where they were when a lot of these uh, platforms are set is that once you fill up a DDTL, it's really going to matter who is in the bank group, how much capacity they have to give you an upsizing. And assuming you can get that done, you can keep going and doing more acquisitions. I think there will be certain situations where a sponsor may have to say, all right, this bank group is out of money. I either can add somebody else in or just depending on who the bank group is, they may have to redo the bank group altogether, which may, for that specific company, take a little bit of extra time and maybe a little bit of a headwind in the market. But overall, I think there's still a lot of demand for getting acquisitions done. And then I think you said, is there any you know specific sectors kind of bucking the trend? I, I think you know within healthcare, especially multi-state healthcare, it's really just kind of continued across the board. I mean, it, it does make a lot of sense and, you know, these different subsectors to join bigger platforms from a you know, quality of life perspective, ability to, you know, make more money if you can cross sell services and, you know, all of that really hasn't changed. So I don't think there's been one that's kind of slowed down or one that's really picked up. It's been actually pretty consistent. So what does all this mean for healthcare M&A volume for the second half of the year? You, you said a moment ago that you're seeing volume start to pick up. What are you looking at for, for the balance of 2023? It's really hard to predict the future, but this has been something that everybody talks about at every conference that you go to. And the consistent thing that I've heard is that in our ecosystem, if you have lenders, private equity funds, and investment bankers, we're all deal people. And so the volume will come back at some point. It's absolutely going to come back. But when is it going to come back is, is the real question. You know, there's, there's definitely some pent up demand that's sitting out there for deals that, have, you know, somebody's owned for you know, three, four, five plus years. 
that need to get sold and are just sitting waiting for, you know, when the markets kind of open up to launch. So that's one of the things we've heard is that a lot of the iBankers have just things sitting on the shelves ready to go. As soon as, you know, the gun goes off for the race, there'll be a lot of things. Just when is that going to go off? So we've been hearing a lot of chatter that the second half is going to be really busy. We still really haven't seen that yet. I think one other data point I thought was kind of interesting is that some of the consultants on the you know regulatory reimbursement side were there maybe more on the front end where, hey, I have this idea of a business that I want to buy. Let's hire you to do a study to kind of get ahead of it. They've been really, really busy. Um, and so if they're you know a canary in the coal mine, you know, maybe that's a sign that things are coming in the next month or so, uh, but I think still TBD. But they have told, told us that we're going to be really busy, <laughs> so we'll see what happens. But, you know, I think we kind of went through a similar dynamic during the pandemic where there was a lot of deals put on hold. And then in the fourth quarter of 2020, there was just the floodgates opened and there were so many deals that were out there that even getting like a Q of E done was impossible or it would take six weeks until somebody could even start looking at something. So that was kind of a similar dynamic uh, as we're at right now with a lot of deals kind of being put on ice. Do we see that much demand again? I don't, I don't think we'll see that much kind of coming back in the system or being that busy, but I think it will be some kind of a similar dynamic at a certain point, just based on this the pent up demand that's out there. And I think the other bigger thing that's maybe a little bit different from them is on the valuation side, I think there's still some figuring out what where the right new level of value is uh, to make a transaction actually happen. You know, I think people are assuming it's down. Uh, some sellers don't want it to be down. And so there needs to be kind of a, a meeting of the minds at some point for that, which will obviously kind of you know, help transactions get done. Healthcare to me is really interesting in that some of the decisions that go into seeking care are quite literally life or death. But at the same time, there are plenty of healthcare procedures that are discretionary or maybe not as time sensitive. So I wonder whether you think continued inflation or recession fears, whether those will affect consumer decisions around healthcare, and and if that's something that's on the minds of private equity sponsors and lenders when looking at opportunities. Yes. So I would agree with you. Inflation and a potential recession should naturally have an impact on non-discretionary spending at some point. And we are, of course, very mindful of these issues when we're evaluating credits up front. The good thing is that when you invest in healthcare, there are plenty of opportunities that are more shielded um, from cyclicality concerns. You know, like, for example, if you have a root canal, you can't put that off <laughs> or there's a lot of you know healthcare procedures where you still have to go get it taken care of and so again that's kind of a, a natural buffer a lot of the procedures you know even if there is a recession but you have insurance it doesn't really impact you going to get it cuz there's a third party paying for the majority of that but if there is a spike in unemployment and there's less people covered by insurance could that be a headwind that could but again, that should be more, much more muted. I've been doing this for a long time. During the, the GFC, that was obviously a really bad recession. But you know, back then, even healthcare deals fared uh, really well kind of through that period of time, or at least well enough to make it through. So I think, again, in general, I think people view healthcare as not anti-cyclical, but recession resistant, we'll say. 
I want to ask you too about specialty practice roll-ups. These, of course, for a long time have been a really attractive play for sponsors. And, you know, we've seen in the past certain specialties emerge as the hot ones to roll up, whether that's dental or dermatology, what have you. Are there any specialty areas right now that are especially popular or or maybe any that have cooled off compared with recent years? Sure. So, you know, specialty practice roll-ups have been popular in the sponsor community for a long time. So if you kind of think about, you know, dental, oral surgery, orthodontic, physical therapy, podiatry, ophthalmology, dermatology, I could keep going, you kind of name it. They've been really attractive spaces to invest in. You have you know, demographics that demographic trends that continue to add demand, organic growth drivers by you know adding ancillary services or cross-selling. And then also on the inorganic side, a lot of acquisition opportunities and sometimes de novo opportunities, depending on the deal. So there's still a lot of demand for the space in general. Like we haven't seen that slow down at all. <laughs> um, again, across some of the, the spaces that have been out there for a while, like dental, PT, ophthalmology, dermatology, some of the newer spaces that people are talking about and getting some more chatter, uh, probably cardiology, podiatry, are newer. Urology is still kind of in the earlier innings. But, you know, even though these spaces haven't, you know, had a lot of roll-ups in the space, they all have the same, you know, characteristics that people have been successful in some of these other specialty roll-ups. And so there's a lot of excitement it's like finding the new space is actually really hard in healthcare. And some people are excited about these newer spaces because it's a similar you know, investment equity game plan that people know. It's just a new space that has more room to roll up. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. There are also some other notable areas that I want to ask you about too, where we're seeing growing private equity interests. I'm thinking acute care alternatives like infusion centers, healthcare IT, vet medicine, pharma services, behavioral healthcare. Tim, do you have any observations you can share about any or multiple of those areas or even others where you're seeing increased activity or noticeable shifts? Right. So yeah, the nice thing about healthcare is that with the demographic growth trends, there's a lot of good areas to make investments. Um, so there's still a lot of opportunities to take costs out of the system to make things more efficient in healthcare. So it turns out there's there's a lot of good investment opportunities. But I would agree with you uh, with the spaces that you had mentioned that are you know have a lot of investor interest. You know, for example, just to go over a couple of them, you know, behavioral health. More and more people are becoming aware of the services, and there's you know less stigma around behavioral health, and so there's a lot of demand that's out there and that's coming into the system. Um, so a lot of just organic growth in that space, you know, pharma services, you know, tailwinds around drug development. And, you know, specifically one thing I thought was kind of interesting was around vaccines, you know, with COVID and the, you know, MRNA technology that came out, you know, that was proven out with the COVID vaccine, but now it actually has a lot of applications in other vaccines uh, related to cancer and other diseases that, was hard to treat before. And so there's a lot of new trials related to various types of vaccines. It's going to have a nice tailwind in that space for a while. You know, on med device, I think you mentioned regulatory consulting, you know, as an example, um, it just becomes, it's becoming more and more and more complex where you have to have great compliance um, so you don't get into trouble. And that becomes kind of table stakes, you know, for some of these businesses. And so, 
there's a lot of demand for those types of services. And I think the last, maybe one of the ones you mentioned on the veterinary medicine side, these have been out there for a, a long time, but I don't really see it slowing down anytime soon. You know, it's kind of similar to PPMs where there are, you know, a lot of roll-up acquisition activities, but it's for, for pets. But, you know, the, on that side, it's paid for, not by third-party insurance. People want to spend more and more money on their on their pets. And I think everybody, including me, got a dog during COVID. So there's a lot of new <laughs> demand out there in the system. So yeah, so a lot of a lot of nice spaces to continue to invest in within healthcare, and again, those are just some of the demand drivers that makes it really interesting and a good place to to make a good return. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I think we'll wrap things up there. Tim, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been really interesting. Yeah, great. It was it was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you liked what you heard today, please give us a rating and write a review. It really does go a long way in helping other listeners find out about us. This podcast is produced by the Association for Corporate Growth, the largest membership association for middle market M&A and corporate growth professionals. We host networking events across the world. We publish magazines and special reports and much, much more. Learn more about the benefits of membership at acg.org and consider joining us as a member. Last thing, if there is a topic you want to hear us talk about on this podcast, a guest you think would be great, or even if you just have some general feedback you want to share, we would love to hear about it. Please send us a note to editor at acg.org. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.